Welcome to Babbittville Radio, a place where you'll hear great conversations with the world's best and most inspirational runners, triathletes, and cyclists. Endurance lives here. Now, here's your host, USA Triathlon and Ironman Triathlon Hall of Famer, Bob Babbitt. Welcome to Babbittville Radio. My name is Bob Babbitt. We're brought to you by You Can, smarter energy to finish stronger. By VeloFix, the world's coolest mobile bike shop. By the PTO, the Pro Triathletes Organization, uniting the pros for better tomorrow. By Form Goggles. By our Challenged Athletes Foundation, we just sent out 3,921 grants, totaling $5.9 million to keep challenged athletes in the game of life through sport. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Babbittville.com, any of your favorite podcast apps. As always, Endurance lives here. Our next guest, the cross-country and track coach at UCSD, Mr. Nate Garcia, joins us. Nate, how you doing? Doing well. Thanks so much for having me on. No problem, Nate. Now, so t- take me back. Were you always a runner? You know, um, I dabbled in a couple other sports growing up. Um, nothing, nothing really stuck. You know, played a little bit of, you know, tried my hand at a little bit of basketball, tried my hand at a couple things, but... Uh, I got a start pretty early on in junior high school uh, running with the uh, San Diego Track Club. They used to do, uh, well, I think they still do. A couple nights a week they would do, uh, they would do workouts down at uh, San Diego High School. Yep. And uh, Paul Greer would uh, run us kids all over, the, uh, all over the stadium, up and down the stairs and everything else. And so uh, I caught the bug pretty early on uh, getting a chance to, uh, to work out with him and have been at it ever since. And you ran at Claremont? I did. Yep. I ran at Claremont. Uh, we had a few different coaches um, come through there, Gary Bloom, Sean Stevenson, and uh, and had a great time uh, running there uh, with a great uh, group of guys and gals on the team at the time. I don't think people realize the, the, the heritage that we have at San Diego with such great runners with, you know, when we had coach Bob Larson, the Hummel Toads and Kirk Pfeffer and Tom Lux and Terry Cotton and all those legends along with Paul Greer and Steve Scott. When did you, make the decision to stay local for college? Uh, did you have options to go other places? Yeah. You know, when I was applying for school, you know, sort of went through the process that a lot of, you know, high school juniors and seniors go through of trying to figure out like, you know, am I supposed to leave town? Is that what you're supposed to do? You know, to be a quote grown up? am I supposed to like go after this big name college or go to a smaller school where it might be easier to fit in and sort of looked at all those options was fortunate enough to be accepted to a variety of different schools. And, you know, as, as we got close, I got some really good advice from, you know, from my family and from some family friends of just find the place that feels like the right fit and uh, got the opportunity to uh, cruise around campus at UCSD. I'd obviously been up there as a kid at different times, but never really looked at it from that same perspective. And, uh, you know, just got up there, ended up uh, bumping into the, uh, coach at the time, Ted Van Arsdale, and him and I got a chance to chat a little bit. I wasn't super fast coming out of high school, so I wasn't real heavily recruited, but uh, he gave me an opportunity. I had just such a good feel about the school up there that I decided uh, staying here in town was the right fit for me. Well, what's great about UCSD, the campus, now there's so much good trail running that it's sort of it's sort of a double secret, right? A lot of people don't realize what's up there with running through all the, all the woods there. Yeah, you know, right on campus, having that eucalyptus grove, that nature preserve on, on campus is a massive benefit for us. And then where we're located, I mean, within a 10-minute jog, you're either, you know, down on the beach there at Black's Beach, you're either in the North Torrey Pines State Park, or you're in Rose Canyon or Sereno Valley, you know, Pinasquitas Canyon. Like, you have so much access to trails 
after only a short bit of time on the road, it really uh, is pretty well situated. So as a collegiate, what do you look at as your best race that you ever had? Ooh, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I was a 5K, 10K guy. Um, and, uh, and we, had, we used to host um, UCSB Spring Break Open, um, which schools from all over the country would come out. During this time, we were still Division Three, and, uh, and I remember some hammers from MIT came out, and it was me and a couple of the guys on our team, and, and uh, we were, got into quite a battle with uh, some of these guys from MIT. And, uh, and I don't know, it, for some reason, that, that race just really stuck with me. It was a night race under the lights on the home track, lots of people out there supporting us, and and it's just, it just—it was one of those sort of magical moments. So I think that was really neat. But honestly, nothing really replaces the championship opportunities. So, you know, so my senior year in cross country, uh, we ran cross country re, uh, D3 West Region Championships up in Oregon. So gorgeous setting. We're right along a river, you know, running through these, you know, these woods, and it was just—it was one of those days where everything had sort of come together. My coach. Um, you know, Coach Ted had told me, oh, I think if you, you know, if you run really well, you could finish top 10. I thought he was crazy because I was going to be happy being, you know, top 25, top 30. And uh, as was pretty much always the case, Ted was right. And everything sort of clicked and was able to finish uh, top 10. And I think that's really one of my highlights of my career. So did you prefer cross country or track as a runner? Yeah, you know, I was definitely one of those runners and I still sort of am as a coach. During the cross country season, I just love it so much. I can't imagine being stuck out on a on an oval all day. I just love being out in that environment. But then, as soon as I get into track season, I just love the energy of being in the stadium. I love the dynamic of having the other events and the other event groups, and just the the different personalities that that brings into the team. So during the track season, I can't imagine wanting to be out in the woods and not in the arena. So, so I'm, I'm sort of uh, well situated that I liked, uh, I liked both pretty equally. So the transition from being a runner there to becoming a coach, uh, how did that happen? Yeah. You know, when, when I was wrapping up my time educationally, I, uh, I, I stuck around an extra year to get a teaching credential um, and to use my fifth year of uh, track eligibility. And, uh, and, and at that time, I didn't really have a massive career plan. My thought was, I'm going to get this teaching credential. It's a good thing to be able to fall back on while I figure out exactly what I want to do. Um, I spent, you know, I, I, I got into teaching after I finished uh, with school. I was working in a junior high school classroom, um, which honestly, and looking back at it now, I really, I really know that it was a blessing, but I was just overwhelmed. I was way over, uh, I was way over my skis in a junior high classroom. Um, and I just wasn't, I wasn't prepared to be able to be, you know, dad on the scene for eight hours a day. And so during that time, I started looking at my options of going back to school, you know, sort of retreating back to something I knew how to do really well. And, uh, and Ted uh, Van Arsdale, him and I were getting together for lunches fairly regularly, just staying in touch. You know, we had a really good relationship. And he asked me if I'd be interested in coming on board as his assistant the next year. Um, so I, I took advantage of that opportunity. And, you know, a couple months into that, I was hooked. It was, uh, it, it, it was so much fun. It was such a cool opportunity to take the educational side I really liked about teaching and the information delivery and then nurturing that way, um, but working with a group of people who really wanted to be there. And then obviously working within the sport, which, you know, been such a major part of my life. So I jumped at the opportunity to be able to keep uh, working with Ted um, and worked with him 
as his assistant for for five years uh, up into his retirement. So what did you learn? What did you take away from Coach Ted? Couple things. Ted has a has has a massive moral compass. He knows he knows what's right and he knows the right way to to to, to do things and to treat people. And he he put such a massive priority on treating people the right way. And I think sometimes in I think in any profession we can get caught up in playing the game, you know, and playing some of the politics involved. And one of the things I always really respected about about Ted was that. He didn't play politics. You know, he, he called things the way they were. He was willing to, you know, walk, confront, you know, difficult situations, even if there was an easier way by turning a blind eye. He was always willing to do things uh, the right way. And I think that's, that became a real inspiration for me and also a real challenge um, because it definitely sort of led down a tougher path in, in some scenarios. But um but I think that it really sort of established the right direction for a program and the right direction for bringing up young men and women and, and, and how to handle things the right way. That was something that Ted was always passionate about is, yes, you're going to leave here with PRs, but you're also going to leave here with an understanding of, of how to interact with the world around you that makes you a you know, real good citizen. You know, it's always fascinating to me. I remember talking to Coach Bob Larson, one of my favorites, Mavs coach and coached at Grossmont, UCLA and everywhere else. Uh I asked him, How, "What's a, define a successful coach?" And he says, "I'm successful if my kids are still running ten years after college, ten years after I work with them, because then they learn they were they learned to love the sport. It wasn't about me seeing how many meets, how many events I could put them in and burning them out. It was if they still love the sport ten years later. Well, what's your philosophy in terms of? Because it's it's hard when you've got somebody who's a star. You want to obviously place them in as many events as possible." But at the same time, if you're talking longevity and their long-term goals, you, you have to protect them as well. Yeah, I think that's one of the toughest things with, with coaching. You know, we talk about it, you know, when we're looking at, you know, going through a recruiting process, we talk about that, you know, the, that the high school coaches face as well. And I think college coaches face it as well. Like, are you supposed to ring them out? Like, is that, is that what you were hired to do? Like, were you hired to get the most out of them during the four or five years that, you're, that they're on your campus? Or were you hired, you know, to do something that 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 has a larger purpose? Um, and I think early in my career, so many of the student athletes who, who come through UC San Diego, I mean, the academic path they are on, very few of them are looking at running as a profession. Right. You know, once they leave, and so, and so for a lot of them, it's like, well, this is my one shot, like to you know, to do these competitive opportunities, go ahead and you know, really get after it. And I think early on in my career, that's more the path I took. And I think in recent years, what I've learned is that there's a, there's a balance there. And there is a way to do things throughout a career where you can really help them accomplish a lot. But like you said, leave them in a place when, so that when they graduate, they still love it. I'm so proud of how many of our folks now are you know, in the club running scene or running you know, for these different club teams, we had a couple um, folks race out at the Olympic marathon trials, you know, this past February. And like, it, it makes me feel like, even though, honestly, like those folks running at the Olympic trials level is a step beyond what they were doing when they were here with me. It makes me proud that they still loved it enough, still had enough passion that mm -hmm. they were willing to keep fighting for it. Um, and so I think I, I get it I personally. 
and I don't know, maybe my bosses would feel differently about this, but I get a lot out of knowing that our folks continue to love this sport and want to continue competing and improving when they leave. It feels like I've done the right thing of being in this moment in their lives for those four to five years to help them continue to grow. So in this pandemic, obviously your, your track and field athletes didn't get a season. And for your seniors who are graduating, uh, they have to make that decision. Do I come back for another year and not come back? Uh, obviously there's a, health concerns, everything else that's been going on. But just from a coach's perspective, not having that closure for your kids, how hard was that? You know, it was really hard. And, it, and it's been one of those things where you're absolutely right. There are these, you know, larger global concerns. Yeah. And, 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 and I think we can take that and sort of acknowledge it. But also on the micro level, it was super hard. You know, we, we, we had we had put together such a such a great group of, of guys and gals, you know, including you know some seniors who you know who had who had really set things up well to be successful this year. We had a, some folks that had stuck around, you know, for a fifth year in order to make this work. Like it, it was really setting up to be a fun season. This was our final um, this is our final year in NCAA Division Two um, before we make the transition up to Division One. It's our final year in our conference uh, that we've been a part of since the fall of 1992, like we had really built the last few years had all been sort of building to finishing well and really leaving our mark on both the division and the conference. And for those folks and for our team not to get that opportunity, uh, it was sad. You know, it was, it was definitely one of those things where, you know, it's not really in my personality to be overly emotional, you know, with the team, but, you know, talking to them, you know, we got the news on, on March 12th that, that the season was done and sitting them down and having to, you know, sort of talk them through that and, 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 and just knowing what it was going to cost them uh, was, was really hard. Um, and it, it's been something that's, uh, that's definitely been a unique challenge uh, for us as a staff. So explain to me the, I know that the UCSD was a division two school, what, across the board in all different sports. Now moving up to division one, uh, how does that affect you guys in terms of championships and things like that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we've been a uh, part of the NCAA division two since the fall of 2000. Mm -hmm. uh, we had made the transition from being a division three school up to division two, um, Division two, division both division three and division two were sort of a little bit unnatural fits for us. Um, academically, we're very much you know sort of on par with you know on par or above a lot of those like D three academic strong you know basis type schools. Mm -hmm. But we're massive, you know, compared to those D three schools, we're just a monster with the number of students. We've got over thirty thousand undergrads on campus. There aren't very many or any D three schools that carry that sort of profile. So the transition to D2 made sense on that respect. On the other hand, we're the only uh, research university, you know, that, that sort of academic distinction, research university in Division II. And so it's not a real, a real we don't have a lot in common with a lot of our, uh, with a lot of, a lot of our D2 uh, fellow schools. Um, and it was always like that little bit of a, of a misfit. So our move to D1, I think, is going to be really good for us. It's going to put us in a place where we can be with uh, more like uh, academic institutions and give us the opportunity to compete against, develop rivalries with other schools that, that our students on campus were considering as well. You know, as we look to make the transition into the Big West, so many of the students on our campus 
considered UC Davis, considered UC Irvine, considered UC Santa Barbara, have friends at those schools, real natural rivalries that I think are going to be uh, great for us as we move forward. From an immediate, it means it means making a leap. Uh, obviously, I'm, I'm a competitive guy, right. uh, so I, I like the idea of us getting a chance to compete against the best. But And the best of D2 is really good, but the best of D1 go to the Olympics, you know, and so it is a, it, it's sort of the next level of us getting ready to uh, yeah. be able to handle that. Uh, so, so we've been working hard to try to get uh, ramped up and perfect, prepared for that level of competition. The, the range of competitive level in division one is wild, you know, from, from the top to the bottom, there's a lot of space in there. I think we're going to be able to position ourselves well. And I think we have, you know, the resources, the, the, the school, uh, the, the reputation, the environment, the location, to be able to recruit, you know, top talent to make us competitive. Um, there is a transition period. I, and I said, I think you're, you know, alluding to a little bit, you know, we're going to make our, we're going to submit our application for division one uh, in the next uh, month or so um, at the university level. And then it is a four year process uh, with the NCAA uh, to full, uh, full membership within the division. Uh, the NCAA has a bunch of, uh, checkpoints that you have to go through as a university to make sure that you're doing things the right way and that you're going to be able to survive as a D1 school with, with the rules and regulations and expectations there. And so over the course of those four years, they're sort of, they're keeping an eye on you each year. You're submitting reports and all this stuff to make sure that you are in the process um, for us. And well, for all sports during those four years, that means that we are as a provisional member ineligible uh, for NCAA championships. That, um, so yeah, so that, that that seems weird. I, I understand if you're moving from Division two to Division one, not being able to compete at Division two championships. That makes sense because you're you're moving up. But if your guys are running the times that qualify for Division one, I don't get why they wouldn't be able to race in NCAA championships. I uh, I agree with you. I don't I don't entirely understand it either. I've, I've I've heard lots of lots of different theories on on why exactly that that process is there. I've heard some conversation of well, we, you know, the NCAA needs to make sure that that the school is completely following the rules because the last thing they want is some school to come up, be successful, and then we find out they weren't following the rules, or then find out they failed to make the transition, so they have to fall back down, and it would be unnatural to have that one or two years of them being there. That seems a little bit soft to me. There's some conversation about about one of the things, like one of the keys is sort of financially, you know, from the NCAA's perspective, making sure that we're able to manage things. So during these four years, while we're ineligible, that also means we're not eligible for uh, the main disbursement of money that the NCAA gives to all the D1 schools as part of their licensing agreements and television contracts and all of that. Um, because they want to make sure that as a school we can function, or as an athletic department, we can function without their help. Um, they want that to be a plus, not a requirement. And so one of the things I've heard is that that's sort of the cleanest way to not give us the money. It's just by making us ineligible for that. Um, I think there's ways around that personally, yeah. um, especially in a sport like ours where you know the clock sort of determines those things. It's going to be a weird thing to look at our – you know, conference opponents. And if we've got a guy or gal faster and they're going off to track regionals and we're not, it feels, it feels unfair. Um, but, but unfortunately that is just sort of the nature of the process. They do a similar uh, thing when you're transitioning 
into Division Two. There's a sit-out period, you know, for that as well. Um, so that it's definitely been that way now for a number of years uh, within the NCAA. Uh, we're grateful that they're allowing um, folks to transition. Uh, there was a blackout period for a while, uh, for a number of years, where schools weren't allowed to transition up to D1. Uh, so we're happy that we're clear of that and we're getting the opportunity to uh, to move forward. How does this re- affect your recruiting uh, when you mm-hmm. have to tell kids, hey, you know, for the next four years, we won't be doing NCAAs, Division Two or Division One? Yeah, yeah. So there, it's it's been a challenge. There's sort of two sides of the coin, and I'll I'll, I'll give you I'll give you the negatives, and then I'll give you the sales pitch after that. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> the the truth is is that we want people. For whom this would be a problem, you know. A, we want people talented enough that they're expecting to go. Right. And B, we want people who value competition and who want to race at the highest level. The truth is, any kid that comes to me and says, "Oh, I don't really care about going to nationals," well, I'm not really interested in having that person on my team. Exactly. You know what I mean, so yeah. So it, cre- it creates a real challenge there, and and sort of having that having that big block is is a negative. Now, we have some we have some tools at the ready. Obviously, the degree you're going to get at UC San Diego, that's enough for kids to consider the compromise. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and, so, and so that definitely helps us. And then what we've been doing, uh, you know, real aggressively is planning out, well, one, sort of planning out the exit of our time in Division Two. you know, really loading up so that the kids that we were recruiting the last couple years who knew, you know, I've got freshmen who came in this year. And they knew they were signing up for one shot at Division II Nationals and then three years of no Nationals. And so building up, you know, a team that was prepared to be able to be successful and, and opportunities for them to really showcase their talent in this setting. For these upcoming years and in, in our four years of transition, for cross-country, we're really tr- going to look to lay out a real competitive schedule so that the folks on our team are going to get to race against some of the best individuals and teams in the country through the regular season. And yes, they're going to miss out on that opportunity at the NCAA championship. But I mean, if I'm being completely honest, that's a tough road to walk anyways, even if we were eligible, you know, making it out of the West region and cross country to go on to the national championship meet is no guarantee, you know? And so, and so for us to take advantage of the regular season and the resources we have to be able to travel, be able to put them in front of, top-level competition throughout the year. So if they're going to get that exposure, they're going to get that opportunity to compete, um, is, and, and they're going to get the experience of the traveling and, and all of that. So we've been selling that side. Um, honestly, the toughest class to recruit, you know, was last year's class and the class of 2020 because they're looking at such a, you know, for the class of 2020, you're selling, if you stay a fifth year, you'll get to go to the national, you know, the regional meet. Right. As I started to recruit the class of 2021, it's an easier sell because what you're explaining to them, and it's something we've really been emphasizing in the recruiting process, is you're going to be my senior leaders the first time we step on the course for you know, a cross-country regional meet. You're going to be the captains of the team that's qualifying people for track regionals. And so, and so sort of selling that and sort of being real intentional with our recruiting of looking for someone who wants that responsibility I think fits well with the type of type of student athlete that we like working with, anyways. Well, it seems like if you're if you're racing against the top Division One programs this next year and you're knocking people off, you've sort of made the statement. And that's the idea. We want to make noise. You know, we want to be able to look at the national championship meet and say, "Well, there's 
you know, 15 teams at this meet that we raced this year. How many of those did we beat or how close did we get to beating any of those or where would we have placed ourselves and begin to sort of make that process. The, the reality is even if we were eligible right away, I wouldn't be projecting us into the national meet this next year. We have, we have to continue to grow. Like we have to continue to develop as a team and we have to, both the, the guys and gals we have and the recruits are bringing in, we have to continue to take those steps up in level. And so the fact that the nature of our sport allows us to get that comp- the competitive opportunity throughout the year and we can just pick these invitationals where we know these good teams are going to be puts us at a massive advantage over some of, you know, the ball sports where it's a lot tougher to convince, you know, North Carolina to play us in basketball. Right. I can, I can go race North Carolina if I know what invites they're going to be at. So, so it definitely gives us some advantages that uh, some of the other sports don't have. So guy I see every single Monday morning for maintenance uh, Dr. Dan Selstat, I've been my active release therapist forever. I've been watching just over the years, his son, Jake, just get faster and faster and faster. I think right now, isn't he ranked like number one? It was 1500 meters or something like that right now. Yeah. Jake is, uh, Jake is awesome. He, uh, he's, he, he's such a, uh, he's such a great guy. We've been so fortunate to, uh, to have him as a, as a part of our team. Um, we had, we've had a lot of fun with him. He's had a lot of success. He 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 did he did have a real good start to the season. Uh, we were we were so excited about uh, about what we were seeing from him um, to, to open up. You know, in, in the few outdoor races that we were able to do before we got started, he he went he ran one fifty two mid. Yes, um, that's right. Real, yeah, for real early yeah. on. And uh, and and we had we had great uh, we had great expectations for where that was going to lead us. Um, by the time the season was done, unfortunately, as we all know, things didn't uh, things didn't quite finish out, or they finished out a lot earlier than we would have planned. Um, but yeah, that uh, that mark of his put him uh, put him in a real nice spot um, for the you know across the country. Um, <laughs> I love that he ranked number yeah. one. Yeah, I mean, other people haven't started their season yet, but hey, I, yeah, <laughs> I got a one fifty two for eight hundred. I'm good. <laughs> yeah, we yeah, we we finished the shortened season with. Uh, three of the top five 800-meter runners in the country. So I'm going to go ahead and put that on. Ah, that's your resume, baby. That's right there, <laughs> Nate. That's right there, yes. In 2020, I had the three of the uh, three top 800-meter runners in the country. <laughs> I love that. Nate, thanks for taking time, but I, I didn't quite understand the whole Division Two, Division One. Now I get it. Uh, it's a surprise. It sounds like they're, they're trying to keep people from, you know, hey, listen, if you're serious about making this move, there's – you know, it, it's a process and we want to make sure that people take it seriously. Absolutely. That's one of the things that they really had to try to regulate. I mean, about a decade ago, you had schools that would jump up from division two, they would be division one for a year, they'd collect money, then they drop back down and spend it for a few years and they jump back up and then they drop back down. And, and that's not good for anybody. It's certainly no. not good for the departments. It's not good for the NCAA. So they're, their goal of making sure that division one schools or whatever division you're in, you're prepared to survive and be successful and thrive there is best for everyone in the long run. Obviously there's some growing pains that go along with that, but, uh, but I do think that they have the, uh, the best of intentions with it. Love it. Hey, Nate, thanks so much for taking time but, uh, and best of luck with the cross country season. That's next, right? That's it. Yeah. We're, we're, we've got our fingers crossed that, uh, Things will be back to normal as much as possible. We're really excited for this coming fall. We've got a great group of returners and a really talented incoming class. So 
So uh, the, the future looks bright for us. I love it. Nate Garcia has been our guest again. We are brought to you by UCAN, Smarter Energy Finish Stronger. VeloFix, the world's coolest mobile bike shop. By the PTO, the Pro Triathletes Organization, uniting the pros for a better tomorrow. By Form Goggles and by our Challenged Athletes Foundation, we just sent out 3,921 grants totaling $5.9 million to keep challenged athletes in the game of life through sport. Check us out. Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Babville.com, any of your favorite uh, podcast apps. As always, endurance lives here.